Good morning, everybody. <laughs> I'm really happy to be here and really glad that we get to talk about these things again. It's, uh, I always considered it almost a hidden vice of mine to, to be able to get up and speak and talk about these things. Um, they've taken so much of a lifetime, I guess, to investigate. It's always a great feeling to talk openly and freely about them. Sitting this morning, the irony of things, listening to the chorus of cell phones being turned off, and I thought they really didn't th- they really didn't think about that at all because most of the time when you want to turn off a cell phone you want some discretion you know it's like you're you're here you're you're in the opera and you turn it off and then it does that you know so if people didn't know it wasn't off now they do but at least the sound kind of mimics how you feel right it's like you sort of wish you could just kind of shut down and disappear under the pew in front of you with it but uh, those things, and still, somebody's phone will still go off this morning. That's the nature of this world. You know, in San Francisco, the center there, they have no less than like six signs that you pass from the front door to the auditorium. You've got to get past four ushers who are told specifically to tell every single person to turn off their cell phone. With four, With those six signs and four ushers, I've never sat through a lecture in, in San Francisco where somebody's phone didn't go off at some point. And I always feel so sorry for that person because you can just, you can just the whole room feels with, fills with that feeling of like everybody's looking around. Anyway, those things are all on the side. But it's the way this world is, you know, just conspires against us, it seems, at times. Uh, and always in a funny way, though. It, there's always a perspective that somehow afterward you can chuckle, you can have a good time with it and understand it. We're going to talk about that this morning, for sure. But before we start, we're going to do our thing. We remind ourselves about what's important, the most important things. And the first, of course, you can, you'll can you be able to recite this if you can't already, because we've done it every time. Just to remember this morning that when Takor was asked, you know, what, what some of the most important things about spiritual life was, uh, he said, uh, your sincerity and your earnestness, and gave us that promise that if you're sincere and you're earnest in your pursuit of the divine, that even if you turn the wrong direction when you go out the door, Mother will make sure that uh, she turns you in the right direction. She'll take responsibility for you if you are sincere and earnest in your pursuit of the truth. The second uh, most important thing, and actually the, it's funny because they're enumerated one, two, three, but these are all at the same level. When Jesus was asked uh, what the most important thing was, uh, he said love, to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love your neighbor as you love yourself. And uh, those are really the same thing, because you can't love God if you can't love God in everyone. And uh, so this morning, our commitment is for that. It's for our sincerity, our earnestness, and our love for the ideal, our love for each other, our love for the third aspect, which is truth. Again, coming from Takor when he was throwing away the pairs of opposites in this world, which is a Vedantic practice, you know, to... Your mother is your good, and here's your bad. Take them both. Give me only pure love for you. But when he got to truth, and he started to imagine throwing truth away and untruth and saying, take them both, he realized he couldn't throw away truth. That truth is fundamental. Truth is part of what we are and uh, necessary for approaching approaching God, approaching our, our true selves. So with those three things firmly embedded, they are the most important message. Anything else that we say this morning, if you go for those three things, you're going to be disturbed. (laughs) You're going to be fine. So take those to heart, and if nothing else, be sincere, be earnest, be loving, and be truthful. And with that, I'm going to turn to Hafiz to set our mood for us in the way he always does in a poem called The Wonderful Lawlessness. Late in winter, my heart is still a rose in bloom. Late in summer, I still have snow-covered peaks upon my back where we can all play and slide. At night, I need no candle or lamp, for my soul has forever awakened to there being just the reality of light and the wonderful lawlessness of God. 
Late in winter I need no heat, for I have entered that infinite fire. Come, build a sled, find a grand hill within my verse. You and I and God should play there more often upon the peak such as Hafiz that the beloved has carved so well. I think I love those poems because of that lawlessness of God. You know, that God is infinite freedom, your first and final, actually, true breath of inhalation, you know, when you have that realization, when you see the truth at that final point, that God is that freedom. And it wasn't about the rules, and it wasn't about the don'ts and the do's, and it wasn't about the practices and the charms and the mantras and all of that, that in the end it was about freedom about love, about play, you know, with the divine. We're going to touch on all those things this morning, but first I'm going to start in a very difficult place. I'm going to read some several scriptures from around the world that set the bar really high <laughs> for spiritual life. And I kind of want to take a look at those and see how they affect us and what we think about it. And then uh, I want to kind of back up and, and look at how that sets the stage for our spiritual life and then end with, uh, with some of the salve of hopefulness, I guess, of, of love from the divine to kind of boost us up, pick us up, and give us that proverbial slap on the patoot to say, go do it, get to it, <laughs> as it were. So I'm going to go to uh, the Vedanta Sara, which is a book, a beginning book on Vedanta, kind of lays it all out. And one of the first things that happens in this book is it uh, lists uh, the, the requirements for the person reading the book. This is how you know you are a competent student. Okay, This is not a list of how to be enlightened. This is a list of how to be a student, how to start your search for God. <laughs> the competent student is an aspirant who, by studying in accordance with the prescribed method, the Vedas and the Vedangas, has obtained a general comprehension of the entire Vedas, who being absolved of all karma in, th- in this or in a previous life by the avoidance of actions performed with a view to attaining a desired object and those forbidden in the scriptures, and by the performance of daily obligatory rites and occasional obligatory duties, as well as through penance and devotion, has become entirely pure in mind." and who has adopted the four means to the attainment of spiritual knowledge, viveka, meaning discrimination between the permanent and the impermanent, vairagya, which is dispassion toward the impermanent and a desire or longing for the permanent, the maturity of mind uh, that, that abides and is focused, and mamukshuktvam, which is a keen desire for liberation. Okay. <laughs> That's the requirements for being a student that you have an absolutely pure mind, that you are fully familiar with the Vedas and the Vedangas, you know, all of that, that you have a working knowledge of all of that, that you are well-established in a daily firm practice, that you are, you are deeply engaged in your duties in a motiveless way of working, that your karmas have been expunged from this life and your previous lives, uh, because you have learned to work without a goal in mind, but simply love for love's sake, um, and, uh, and, and that you are uh, mastering the four uh, means of attaining spiritual knowledge. I read that my first year uh, in Vedanta, my first year in the monastery, and I, I, I really knew at that point that I had made a big mistake. <laughs> I really understood that uh, I had I had a much bigger amount of food on my plate than I could ever eat, um, <clears throat> but this was this is laid up front and it's stated and it's put forward as a real thing. This is what a qualified student is. Next, there's one. For, we're going to go to Takur and sit in his room for a minute. He also says the truth is, okay. Takur's telling you the truth is, okay. I'm going to tell you the truth. You cannot attain God if you have even a trace of desire. You cannot attain God if you have even a trace of desire. Subtle is the way of dharma. 
If you are trying to thread a needle, you will not succeed if the thread has even a slight fiber sticking out. Not even, not even a trace of desire. He's not even whittling, he's not even talking about whittling it down to just a love of French toast. <laughs> he's, he's saying, whittle this all the way down so there's not even a trace. There's not even that. You smell that French toast and you're not even going to turn your head. You know, it's like, there's just no, nothing there. So he says, unless you reach that place, you can't, you can't attain God. You can't attain God. He says, there are people who perform japa for 30 years and still do not attain any result. Why? Because a gangrenous sore requires very drastic treatment. Ordinary medicine won't cure it. One cannot realize God without renunciation. Who will accept my words? Who will accept my words? That's from Takur. Now we're going to go to Jesus in the New Testament scriptures. And he's walking with his uh, disciples and, a, and a, young, a wealthy young man, a young ruler, comes up to him and says to him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus answers, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not give false testimony. Honor your mother and father. The boy says, All these I have kept since I was a boy, he said. When Jesus heard this, he said, You still lack one thing. Sell everything you have. Give it all to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And then, come and follow me. When he heard this, he became very sad, because he was a man of immense wealth. So this, <laughs> you know, this is Jesus telling, telling some guy who's earnestly very religious kept all of the, the precepts since he was a boy, he said. He's been very faithful since he was a child. And Jesus is telling him, okay, well, you, he tells him the usual things, you know, oh, well, you know, do this and do that and do this. And most people would walk away and be like, okay, I'll work on those and be content. The boy says, no, I've done all that, you know. And Jesus says, oh, okay, well, just one more thing. <laughs> give, give it all away. Walk away from the world completely. And serve, and serve God, then come and follow me. It goes on, it says, Jesus said, as they were walking along with Jesus, a man said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus replied, foxes have dens and the birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. He turned and said to another man, follow me. But the man replied, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. Jesus said to him, let the dead bury their own dead. You go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Still another said, I will follow you, Lord, but first let me go back and say goodbye to my family. Jesus replied, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the service in the kingdom of God. (laughs) Wow. (laughs) I grew up with scriptures like that. I think all of us have. We've read these things. And uh, what happens when you read those, you know? What, what happens in the mind when you read that just to be a student, <laughs> you haven't even started to meet the qualifications of just being a student, you know? That when you approach Jesus, you know, what, what should I do? You think you're doing pretty good. And then he's just said, oh, just one more thing. <laughs> Walk away from it all. What happens? What happens in your mind? You know what happens in our mind? The first chapter of the Gita happens in our mind. The first chapter of the Gita gets written when you when you are in the mind, because you're in the middle of two armies. You place your chariot. Place my chariot, O Krishna, so that I may behold those who stand here, desirous to fight, and know with whom I must fight. And when the battle begins, so that's the first thing that you do when you're confronted with these truths, these extreme truths, these these outrageous ideals. And, and, and they're, you're faced with them as a person. That's the first position. You see the battle. You see how much has to be, some, be done. You see how much work has to be gone through. You see how many things you're clinging on to. You see all of the, the things that you're not willing to go beyond. And, 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 and you look over that situation. You, you, who am I going to have to fight? What am I going to have to deal with here? 
What am I going to have to conquer? How is this going to happen? So we pull our chariot into the middle. We look over. And Arjuna says, I desire to observe those who are assembled here to fight, wishing to please in battle Duryodhana, the evil-minded. We grow faint of heart when we see these attachments. Because when Arjuna looks out, when you look out over this amassed army, this battle that's forming of what has to be done for this God-realization, the problem is, is just like Arjuna, when we look out, we don't see the enemy we don't see the things that are trying to destroy us, that are trying to, to take away our birthright, take away everything that we are. What we see is what he sees. Then Arjuna beheld there stationed grandfathers and fathers, teachers, maternal uncles, brothers, sons, grandsons, and friends too. He saw fathers-in-law and friends also in both armies. The son of Kunti, Arjuna, Seeing all these kinsmen standing arrayed, spoke sorrowfully and filled with deep pity. All right. So we look at our, we look at these things that have to be done, you know, we, and, and what do we see? We don't see them as they are. We see them as our attachments, you know, and attachments is one of those words that, you know, Buddha would never have used it <laughs> because it brings up a predefined amount of feeling and whatnot when we say it. But we look over and we miss we missee what we see, you know we we don't see the indivisible, ever blissful presence of the divine. We see our brothers and our sisters and our friends, we see uh, you know our our favorite vices, you know our <laughs> our hours watching friends on television or you know uh, sleeping in through a, you know just one meditation here and there. Or, you know, taking a vacation from spiritual life altogether, you know, <laughs> for a week or two weeks or whatever it is. All these things that, that, you know, we feel friendly toward. You know, we, 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 we have a warm relationship with them. And when we're called into battle with that, when we're called to face this overwhelming ideal, and we look at these armies arrayed and we look at the battle that has to be fought, you know, we feel exactly like like uh, Arjuna feels, you know. He says when he saw them in both armies, he was filled with pity. He says, I desire neither victory, Krishna, nor pleasures, nor kingdoms. Of what avail is a dominion to us, O Krishna, or pleasures, or even life? These I do not wish to kill, though they kill me, O Krishna, even for the sake of dominion over three worlds, leave alone killing them for the sake of the earth. Though they, with intelligence overpowered by greed, see no evil in the destruction of family and no sin in hostility to friends, why should not we, who clearly see evil in the destruction of a family, learn to turn away from this sin, O Krishna? What's he doing? He's justifying his position, isn't he? Justifying his position, which is our first temptation, you know, when we're faced with these ideals and we're faced with the work that has to be done in our spiritual life, when we see a bar that's just obviously, in our own estimation, too high for us to cross, we start, we start backing up and saying, well, you know, I don't like the idea of a battle anyway. You know, I, I don't like an idea of a war anyway. Fighting, God, you know, God's not about fighting. It's about peace and love. Why should, even though those things are trying to kill me, you know, it doesn't mean I should try and kill them, you know, just because they have no respect of family or they, they aren't a part of my inheritance, you know, my divinity, even though they keep me bound and stuck and swinging from happiness to sadness in a continual way. You know, it's not about fighting. It's God is love. You know, everything is God. I should just kind of keep my life going the way it is and just learn to see everything is God. You know, I, I don't really have to do all that hard work, roll up my sleeves, get my hands dirty. I'll just kind of keep things as they are and sort of, you know, in a general way, just try and see God in everything. And then, then we'll be all right. You know, and that's what Arjuna does. He goes through there and he sees all of these things and he's, he, he acknowledges that these things are out to kill him. He acknowledges that, that this, this opposing army is going to rob him of his, of his inheritance. He's going to get no kingdom at all. 
You know, he's he's going to get he's going to get nothing out of this deal. If he walks away with his life, he's going to be a lucky man. You know, in this situation, because he has nothing. You know, the kingdom has been completely robbed from has been completely robbed of him. His his innate being uh, as a king, you know, is has been robbed of him. And it's it's really fun when you when you read the scripture and just sort of let that sort of play out in your own life to understand this is your story. It's not Krishna's and Arjuna's story. Who cares about Krishna and Arjuna? They somebody from long ago, I never met them, whatever. This is your story. It's the story that you're living right now. This this is written down in the scriptures because all of us, you know, we're one. We're facing the same dilemma. You know, we're on different aisles of the grocery store, but we're all in the grocery store, right? It's like there's different things grabbing our attentions. But but in the in the in the overall picture of mankind, we're we're involved in the same battle. You know, we're involved involved in the same thing. And you look at 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 the nature of Arjuna. He was a king. You know, but you're a king. Me, I'm not a king. You are. You know, you are that divine child of God, the manifestation of the divine. Absolute purity, absolute freedom, absolute bliss, you know, manifested. That's your birthright. You have a kingdom. You know, you have an inheritance to stand, you know, if you want to take some Christian vision views, you know, to stand at the right hand of God. You know, that's your, that's your final place. That's your right place, you know, to stand, to stand next to the divine. But these things that are robbing you of that, that are keeping you a pauper, you know, at this point, Krishna had nothing. He had no land to call his own. His army was purely voluntary. You know, he didn't really have an army as such at that point. He, his land had been completely taken away. He is just coming out of spending, what, 14 years or something in the, in the forest. So, uh, you know, probably his Sunday best isn't all that hot. And he's standing there and he's like, I've got to go to, war against a king who's got everything. He's got land, he's got money, he's got, you know, followers, he's got a a proper army that's bigger than mine, you know, lined up with that. And that's the situation. You just kind of think about your own situation. That's that's what's going on for you. You've put yourself into a, a state of exile, you know, by your forgetting your nature. You've been sent off into the woods to figure it out, you know, to do sadhana for X number of years. And you end up facing this battle. This is the battle that you have to face in order to take your inheritance. That's rightfully yours. It's not a matter of greed. It's not a matter of wanting more. You know, Arjuna very nicely says that I I don't care about the material of this war. You know, it's I don't care if I get my my army or my land or my riches or whatnot. You know, it's not that. It's something more subtle than that. It's a matter of what is. It's a matter of isness. Now it's interesting when you're when you when you get when you come into this place, you know, when you're confronted with this battle, because there's two ways that you can go with it, and we're seeing in the world right now what happens if you take one way over the other. For a for a for a a fanatic, if you're a fanatic type person, which I think describes me in my 20s, you read this here. And your mind goes outward. You know, you, you feel the pain inside because you know that you're not living up to those requirements. So you go outward and you begin to attack the world outside of you. Your first attack is, is your own church. Why do these people don't believe this stuff? They're all a bunch of hypocrites. You know, they, don't, they come here on Sundays and they do their thing. But who's doing any of this? Look, the scriptures, every here week we hear this. And who's doing any of it? And the leadership, they're just as lukewarm as anybody else. You know, I saw one of them at the coffee shop the other day. It's like, so your first attack, you know, the first attack is the people around you, your institution, your, your, your own kinsmen, you know, and you, you, you replace that sense of righteousness that you've lost because you realize that you're not meeting that goal and you substitute zeal for that, for that feeling. For, of righteousness, for that justification. I'm just going to be super zealous about getting out there and just getting this right. I'm going to start a new movement and only the good people are going to be on my side. I'm going to start a new church and only the good people are going to come to it and we're going to be down hardcore, man. You know, that's how you talk when you're 20 something. It's like, I want hardcore. I want results. We're going to go. We're going to take this on. You know, I remember sitting with a, an old man, Mr. Blackstone, in his living room. 
and going through this exact conversation with him, this exact conversation with him over these exact scriptures and telling him, we need to set the church on fire. You know, we just need to, to get people fired up and involved and engaged and doing their practice. And we just got to go and just got to go and just got to go. And that was my whole thing. I threw my life into that for a couple of years, you know, and it gave a great deal of satisfaction. That's being driven. That's not being inspired. Okay, that's the first. There's two options you get to be. When you hear these scriptures, you get two options. You get to be inspired or you get to be driven. If you insist on remaining ego-centered, if you insist on remaining this, this thing that you are, but you still want to deal with the pain that this causes, your choice is to be a fanatic. You know, you're going to go out and you're going to behead 97 Christians, you know, on the beach. You're going to go out and attack a grocery store because, after all, these are infidels, and we've got to make a, we've got to let the world know we're serious. We've got, we got standards we need to establish here. You know, there are good people and there are bad people, and by golly, you're going to know who it is before the day's over. You know, that's being driven. That's when you hold on to the ego. When this reflection didn't turn you inward, it didn't turn you inward. It turned you outward. And you went out into the world with your ego and a pain that you had to cover and a failing that you had to pay for somehow. And so you turn to fanaticism because it's very satisfying to the ego to be on the right side. To be on the right side. And to mete out justice as the one who gets to determine what that is. But there's a better way, you know. There's a better way. Let's look at what, what Krishna says. First of all, he's going to confront Arjuna's discouragement. So Arjuna hasn't made his decision about what he's going to do yet, but he's overwhelmed. He's pretty bummed out. He's like, bad situation. I like all these things. I don't want to give anything up. I don't want to really have to move my life that much around. I want an easier way. But Krishna says to him, from whence is this perilous strait come upon you? language is so weird. This dejection which is unworthy of you, disgraceful, and which will close the gates of heaven upon you, O Arjuna. Yield not to impotence, O Arjuna, son of Pritha. It does not befit you. Cast off this mean weakness of the heart. Stand up, O scorcher of foes. So that's his first thing. (laughs) It's that, you know, you, you kind of want a hug. You're expecting a puppy Krishna's not coming initially with a puppy. You know, God's not saying, I'm sorry, I don't pay attention to that. You know, (laughs) those things are for other people, not for you. Don't worry about it. You know, let me just give you a hug. You know, (laughs) it's going to be all right. Just come down out of the chariot. We'll just go off and these guys will take care of themselves. You know, fight or won't fight. No, that's not, (laughs) that's not the situation that we're in, right? Krishna's turning to you and he's saying, yo, Get up. <laughs> Knock it off. What is this? What is my dad used to call it? Navel gazing. You know, sitting there staring at your belly button, you know, like, mm, life is terrible. So your first command from the one who loves you the most, stop it. Get up. Don't get discouraged. That's not the point. That's not why I'm telling you these things. Don't get stuck on that. It's unbecoming to you. What does that mean? Because you are divine, for crying out loud. You are fully loved by the divine, by God himself. You know, you are the inheritor of perfect freedom, absolute purity, absolute bliss. What is there that you're staring at your belly button over in, dis, in, in disdain, dis, you know, discouragement, being self-consumed like that? Stand up, you know, <laughs> get dressed. We're going out. We're getting something done here. He says, you have grieved for those who should not be grieved for, and yet you speak words of wisdom. You know, he's talking about that method of fooling ourselves, you know, fooling the mind. Because our goal, as lower selves, is to keep things pretty much as they are. Try and get a little bit more happiness going on, you know, try and get a little bit more good times going on, minimize the bad times, but pretty much keep ourselves in the driver's seat, keep ourselves in charge, you know, make sure water's flowing in our direction more often than it's not. And, uh, you know, that's one thing about spiritual life is that's got to be confronted. You know, you have to stand back and say, wait a minute. You know, that's a big compromise. 
that's not what this battle is about. That's not the solution. You have to stand up. You have to take some courage and you have to learn to see things as they are. Because like Arjuna, you understand that these things are killing you. You're understanding that these things are taking away your realization, your knowledge of God, your knowledge of the divine, your infinite bliss. You've gone and, 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 and grieved for things that should not be grieved for. You've been discouraged by things you should not be discouraged about. You've been asked to give up things that you should not be unhappy about giving up. You know, these attachments. Because they are not what you think they are. They are, they, they are to destroy you. They are to deny you your inheritance. They are to keep you from experiencing your freedom of your nature. We're going to go to Swamiji because nobody talks about this topic better than Swamiji. And he just jumps in. If you know you are bound, well, then you are bound. If you know you are free, you are free. My mind was never bound by yearnings of this world. For like the eternal blue sky, I am the essence of knowledge. I am the essence of existence. And I am the essence of bliss. Why do you weep, brother? Neither death nor disease is for you. Why do you weep, brothers? Neither misery nor misfortune is for you. Why do you weep, brothers? Neither change nor death has predicated of thee. Thou art existence absolute. I know what God is. I cannot speak of him to you. I know not what God is. How can I speak of him to you? But do you not see, my brother, that you are he, that you are he? Why go seeking God here and there? Seek not, and that is God. Be your own self, one that cannot be confessed or described, one that can be perceived in our heart of hearts, one beyond all compare, beyond limit, unchangeable like the blue sky. Oh, learn the All-Holy One and seek for nothing else. Where changes of nature cannot reach, thought beyond all thought, unchangeable, immovable, whom all books declare, whom all sages worship, O Holy One, seek for nothing else. This is, this is Swamiji's words to Arjuna in the chariot. This is what he's saying. When, when Krishna said, you're not seeing things as they are, this is what Krishna was saying to Arjuna. Remember your nature. Remember who you are. See clearly. You know, if you continue, if you continue to take the, the, the route of discouragement and the route of being downtrodden and overcome by the things you can't accomplish, you know, then you will be bound. There's nothing more I can do. That's nothing, nothing more I can do. And it's not because of me. It's not because of God. It's because of you. You know, you've made that separation and maintained it. It's like, no, God is there and I'm here and I'm going to keep it like this by hanging on to these things that are not of my nature, that are not of who I am, and I'll be separate. And God has to, God has to leave you with that. He has to respect you. He is you, <laughs> after all. He's going to give you that space, and you can sit there with that in the you know, in your muddy clothes as long as you as long as you want to. You know, there's there's not a there's no external punishment going on. You know, of your condition, God's not going to try and you know beat on you until you realize the way it is. He'll let you experience your non-self until you realize, wow, what am I doing? totally wasting my time here with things that don't last, things that don't really exist, things that depend, depend entirely on machinations of mind to matter. Things that you can discriminate about and realize that they don't make sense. You know, That you would only love your family. That doesn't make sense if you, when you put it to scale. Because what is it, one person over another person? You know, what, what is it that, that you have to show favor to a group of people over another group of people? When all the qualities of people are involved, are, are manifested equally on both sides, you know, these things fall apart with awareness. So he's talking to you when he says, 
You're grieving for things that should not be grieved. Learn to see things as they are. So your first, your first get up. <laughs> Stop the navel-gazing. Stop the depression. Stop focusing on what you're not accomplishing or what you can't do or how impossible the task looks. Forget that. Not the point. Not going to get you anywhere. So stand up and get going. And the second thing is learn to see it like it is. Don't be sentimental. You know, most of us are bhaktas here practicing devotional, a devotional path to God. And one of the biggest dangers in the bhakti path is sentimentality, you know, which basically is love without renunciation, love without discrimination, you know, where you're just, you're into the ooey-gooey, the into the feel-good about it all, but you're not into, into, into drawing near to the divine, you know, which, which burns out those things which are untrue which burns out those parts of you that are not part of your nature, that are not pure, you know, that are based on body, based on mind. He goes on to say, this is, we're again back in the chariot with Krishna and Arjuna, and Krishna says, Further, having regard to your own duty, you should not waver, for there is nothing higher for a kshatriya than a righteous war. I didn't want to include that one. <laughs> it sounds it sounds too macho, you know, I'm not into the macho, but I figured God said it, I probably ought to at least mention it. <laughs> but <laughs> this idea having regard for your own duty, okay, for what what your responsibility, you know, you've got to take these things on. You've got to stand up. You know, the reason that there's no caste, you know, for, for those folks that come from India, the reason there's no caste among the devotees is not because we just did away with it. It's because we all became kshatriyas. We all became warrior caste because we all entered into a battle to know God, to know the divine. We've all become Krishna and Arjuna in our, in our chariot, you know, for our seeking. We've all been given the tools of battle and we've all been commissioned to fight the fight. So we're all, <laughs> I don't know how blasphemous that is for me to say, just, you know, pet me as an ignorant if, I, if I'm saying something beyond my star there. But this idea that we're all kshatriyas, we're all warriors in this. We've all been caused to, to cover each other's back, you know, to, to win this battle, to, take, to, to make sure that, that uh, the divine qualities in ourselves are the winning qualities in ourselves. There's nothing higher for us than a righteous war, <laughs> a war that you can know is worth fighting, you know. That it's not, you know, again, I, I, I know a, a good friend of mine, actually, early on in Vedanta, he was given the Gita to read, and he read, he read the first chapter and refused to touch the Gita again after that because he was like, what is this, a, a holy book about a war? <laughs> it's like, you know, what, how, what, what, no, you know, if you start off a holy book about war, you, you lose me completely. And that's and that that's true, you know. If you take it as as a violent external war of, of people groups, and you don't understand that it's just merely a description of your own state of being, of, of what of what you've got in front of you, what's on your plate to do, you've got to fight. So we're going to go back to Swamiji here to talk about this, having your own duty and knowing that there is nothing higher than this for for you, a spiritual warrior, than a good righteous war. He's going to take it take this standing up to this extreme. So if the whole responsibility is thrown upon our own shoulders, we shall be at our highest and our best. When we have nobody to grope toward, no devil to lay our blame upon, no personal God to carry our burdens, when we are alone responsible, then we shall rise to our highest and our best. I am responsible for my fate. I am the bringer of good for myself. I am the bringer of evil. I am the pure and the blessed one. We must reject all thoughts that assert the contrary. I have neither death nor fear. I have neither caste nor creed. I have neither father or mother, brother, neither friend nor foe. For I am existence, knowledge, and bliss absolute. I am the blissful one. I am the blissful one. I am not bound either by virtue or by vice, by happiness or by misery. misery. Pilgrimages and books and ceremonials can never bind me. I have neither hunger nor thirst. The body is not mine. 
nor am I subject to the superstitions and the decay that come to the body. I am existence, I am knowledge, I am bliss, absolute. I am the blissful one, I am the blissful one. This wonderful notion of strength of Swamiji, this was in the words of Krishna, when he says, stand up and fight, it is unbecoming for you to shrivel in the face of your duty, in the face of the battle that is yours, a battle that is cannot be higher, cannot be more worth fighting than this. You know, it's not a battle for the weak. You know, it's not. It's that. That's also part of that sentimentality. You know, when we approach God, it's like, oh God, you know, I can't do this. You've got to help me. Oh, why didn't you help me? <laughs> you know, if you had had, if you had really given it to God, there would have been no question. It would have been done. It would have been finished. You know, but when you gave it up, when you said you were giving it to God, you kept it in your mind. You kept it there in your mind and you kept it spinning until you fell, you know, until you gave into it. It's like you are responsible. You know, God didn't put you in this situation. There's not a third party out there meeting out good and bad. Oh, this one gets 12 points and this one's going to get four coals. And this one, woof, we'll get back to that later. You know, it's like there's no third party there. When you die... God is not going to be like, okay, you're getting in this can now for this experience. <laughs> you know, it's like no liberation for you. At least 500 more. Don't talk to me. It's not, you know, it's not like that. It's, there's not a third party. You know, we, we wish there was a third party because the real scene, if we can kind of videotape that moment when I pass away, and I'm like, mm, oh, look at this can. <laughs> you know, you you squeeze into a new body. You're the one that chose not to go for the for for liberation, for for ultimate freedom. You thought, ooh, that body's a nice one. Oh, that family's a good one. That future's got a lot of potential. That that's exactly what I'm looking for. And you just run in there and put it on and <laughs> regret it for the next ninety years or whatever. But <laughs> but the bad news is, you did it to yourself. You know. We're sitting here, a room full of unrealized people this morning, not because God is forbidding us from realization, but because we've chosen it. You know, you are at this moment the sum total of every desire you've ever had. And some of them have canceled out other ones, and some have trumped other ones. But you are this morning the sum total of every desire of your life. And if it hasn't amounted to realization yet, stand up and be responsible and get to work. Do what you have to do. Do what you have to do, what you know you have to do to be a lover of mankind, to be a lover of of God, to be a man or woman consumed with the divine. Take responsibility. There is nobody out there who's done this to you but yourself. Be what you are. Take back your rightful inheritance as God himself, love itself, the truest manifestation. Slain, you will obtain heaven. Victorious, you will enjoy the earth. Therefore, stand up, O son of Kunti, resolved to fight. Vivekananda says, this, says the Vedanta, is the only prayer that we should have. This is the only way to reach the goal to tell ourselves and to tell everybody else that we are divine. And as we go on repeating this, strength comes. He who falters at first will get stronger and stronger, and the voice will increase in volume until three things. I love these three things. The truth takes possession of our hearts, courses through our veins, and permeates our bodies. Delusion will vanish as the light becomes more and more effulgent. Load after load of ignorance will vanish. And then will come a time when all else has disappeared and the sun alone shines. To not forget, stand up, take responsibility, fight a fight, the only fight that's worth fighting, that you can feel no shame about being fully engaged in, fully committed to and remind yourself over and over and over and over and over again you are Arjuna you have a kingdom that is rightfully yours you have God in your chariot next to you as your companion as your strength as your guide as your inspiration 
get up and do what you need to do, make the commitments you need to make, make the changes you need to make, and go forward. Go forward. No matter how much sadhana you practice, you will not realize the goal as long as you have desire. But this is also true, that one can realize the goal in a moment through the grace of God, through his kindness. Take the case of a room that has been dark a thousand years. If suddenly someone brings a lamp into it, that room is lighted in an instant. Suppose a poor man's son has fallen into the good graces of a rich person. He marries his daughter. Immediately, he gets an equipage. He gets clothes, furniture, a house, and other things. A devotee says to, to Ramakrishna, Sir, how does one receive God's grace? The master. God has the nature of the child. A child is sitting with gems in the skirt of his cloth. Many a person passes him by along the road, and many of them pray to him for the gems. But he hides the gems with his hands and says, turning away his face, No, I will not give any away. But another man comes along. He doesn't ask for the gems, and yet the child runs after him and offers him the gems, begging him to accept them. So we learn something more. Okay, Takur follows up. He's like, it's true. You know, no matter how much sadhana you practice, you will not realize the goal as long as you have desire. Okay, he says that's true. He says that's true. But he says, but this is also true. This is also a truth. That one can realize the goal in a moment through the grace of God. There's another reason not to be discouraged. It can be done. Now why does he say that God has the nature of a child? And that he says that God might give the gems to you and he might not give you the gems. Because if God gave you the gems as a reward for anything, you would be indebted to him. You would be in bondage. You get the gems free of charge. You know, when you go, go to Takor and he gives you those things, there's no, there's, there, it's not a paycheck for having done your sadhana. You know, it's not a paycheck for having done a good life or being a good person or, you know, having given up all of the right things. It's not a reward like that. It's your nature. It's been yours the whole time. It's been in your pocket the entire time, that uncashed check, as it were. You know, this is the only way that true love can be expressed. It's the only way that God could really love you is to give you something that has nothing to do with your earning it. Something that's always been yours. That's the way it stays pure. So let's go to Jesus and let him clean up his challenge. <laughs> then Jesus said to his disciples, Truly I tell you, it is hard for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I'll tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished and asked, My God, who can be saved? Who's going to make it? Jesus looked at them, and then he said, With man, this is impossible. But with God... All things are possible. All things are possible. So this is our final outcome. We can understand that we have a very difficult task ahead of us. We have a lot of work to do. You know, we've got a lot of sadhana to engage in. We've got a lot of practice to work on, to learning, to not be selfish, and to not desire things, to be able to see them accurately so that we're not attracted to them as objects and to see that that which attracts us is God alone and to learn to identify that first in the things that, we, that remind us of him, to see that first so that we're always recognizing that we're being called to God, that we're being beckoned to the divine, not to the people and things that are reflecting him for us, to see them accurately to see them inaccurately is to have them kill us, to have them entangle us, to have them bind us, to steal our, our birthright. To see them properly is to be called to God. 
to be called to the divine and to have God in the end give you that handful of gems simply because it was always yours because it is who you are because you were responsible because you understood that you were in charge that you didn't blame anyone or anything you didn't take the path of weakness or excuse but you turned toward the divine and you saw him in every face you saw him in in, in every color and you chose him because of that Yes, it's a tough path, so much so that it's impossible. Jesus said it. With man, it's impossible. With man, it's impossible. This ideal is beyond reach from that perspective. But you are not a man. You're not a woman. You are the divine. And with God, all things are possible. It happens all the time in heaven. It happens all the time, and someday it will begin to happen again on earth, that men and women who are married and men and men who are lovers and women and women who give each other light often will get down on their knees and while so tenderly holding their lover's hand with tears in their eyes will sincerely speak, saying, My dear, how can I be more loving to you? How can I be more kind? to be able to take everybody's hand because your lover is the divine, the watcher behind every eye. And you can look at him and say, it might be cool to do it to somebody that you don't know here this morning. Be as weird as possible and just go up and take someone's hand and say, my dear, how can I love you more? How can I be more kind? And find the gems that are already yours. Do you want to sing a song? Mm-hmm.